0: Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist, oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... First up, listener questions. You won't want to miss this. Then, I'm joined by Dr. Bishal Gaywali, and we're going to talk about recent events in the news, so we've got quite a show in store for you. Stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, VinayPrasadmdmpH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on plenary session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenary session podcast at gmail dot com. First up, listener questions. The first listener question comes from Dr. Sophie Halliger, who is an infectious disease expert in Denmark. Sophie's a friend of the show and Plannerd, and asked me to take a look at a policy forum piece that is co-authored by Didier. Raoult, that's right didier Raoult. the man the myth the legend he put hydroxychloroquine on the map and only later did we learn that hydroxychloroquine was completely mistaken as every single randomized trial to date finds that it is staggeringly negative and has no benefit for covid19 but that doesn't stop him from doubling down First, I think in all seriousness, we should acknowledge that this gentleman did a major disservice in the middle of a pandemic. He displayed an animosity for randomized controlled trials and a propensity to hype uncontrolled quasi-experimental data, if you'll call it that, in his 1,000-person uncontrolled study. And he promulgated and pushed the use of hydroxychloroquine and got a lot of people to use it. And in retrospect... All those people probably took something that had no benefit and he wasted a lot of time and he squandered the most precious resource there is in a pandemic or in any medical situation, which is people who are willing to try one thing or the other with the goal of answering what actually helps and what doesn't. Well, he's back with a new policy forum article and this is entitled, and the title says it all. Why Randomized Control Trials Are Not Appropriate During Pandemics by Dr. Abroki and Didier Raoult from Marseille, France. Yes, the place where evidence went to die, Marseille, France. Let's see what they have to say. Abstract. In epidemics, there's an urgent need for new knowledge on drug efficacy to help policymakers fight the crisis. Well, that's true. That, that, that is true. Among clinical studies, RCTs are claimed to be the gold standard. However, they suffer from several limits and most of the time do not reach the aims. Yet, the best research methodology to do this is a matter of debate. Oh, is it? Is it? Well, let's see. What do they say? First of all, they begin, quote, an RCT is designed to attempt to reduce bias. Well, they got that part right. They, they state that RCTs reduce causality and spurious bias. I've not really heard it called causality bias, but I believe I get their point, which is that RCTs are a wonderful way of separating what is the causal effect of an intervention versus not having that intervention. That's why they're really, really useful. But their general argument is that in the midst of a pandemic... Uh, it takes a while to conduct a randomized trial and publish results um, that, as we all know, when things are obviously beneficial, uh, we don't need randomized trials. And of course, they cite a parachute paper. But guess what? They don't cite the original BMJ paper. They cite reference three. And what is this reference three? Oh boy, it's Bobby ye's paper. It's the new paper where, in order to conduct a randomized controlled trial, they had to lower the height to 0.6 meters so they cite that paper which is exactly how i predicted it would be cited it would be cited by people who don't want to do randomized trials to justify not doing them which is the entirely foreseeable consequence of bobby Yeh's paper which is that people would cite it in this way so those are their general sort of thoughts that it takes too long to do um, one of their other objections they raise is that they have other sorts of problems Their other objection is that you wouldn't do it in obvious situations. And we quickly learned the pandemic was devastating. And we quickly learned that if you gave hydroxychloroquine, things were better. Ergo, it's a parachute-esque intervention. I mean, I think the problems with this argument are several fold. One, oh, it takes too long to do. Well, It takes many people a long time to do randomized trials, particularly people who are unwilling to randomize patients, but as we saw with the recovery trial, as we saw with the French Discovery and the WHO Solidarity, as we saw with the Remdesivir NIAID study, they are doable, and they were done in a timely fashion, and the NIAID study and dexamethasone in the recovery trial, those are giving information still in the midst of a pandemic, and that information is useful, and it didn't take so long to publish the papers because they could issue a press release and they could put it on a preprint server and when it was well done they could have previously posted their statistical analysis plan and their protocol as the recovery investigators did and so we would all be prepared and people like me the moment I saw the press release I had read the protocol which was already available to me I was convinced that that was a well done study well enough done that you can act upon it. Similarly, I think the NIAID study was a positive study. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They changed their endpoint, but they did so when very few events had occurred and without looking at events. Um, And although the primary endpoint was not overall survival, it was a clinical endpoint. It wasn't a surrogate. That's a common fallacy. It was a clinical endpoint. It's just a lesser clinical endpoint. So, you know, Didier Raoult is incorrect. And the final thing that's incorrect is that before he had time to complete his victory lap for hydroxychloroquine, many people had come to the scene with randomized trial data showing that it didn't do what he thought it did. In addition to that, it would have been done even sooner if it weren't for people like him who took a thousand people and did not randomize them. We would have already had randomized trial data for anticoagulants if The Mount Sinai investigators had decided to randomize instead of conducting a large uncontrolled experiment. We would have already had the randomized trial data. So, you know, people who say we can't do randomized trials in a pandemic, I don't think they understand the issue. If the outcome occurs in a rapid fashion, as death does, unfortunately, with COVID, if you're going to die of COVID, you're not going to die of it five years from acquisition. You're going to die of it in the first few weeks of getting it. The endpoint is occurring with some frequency. The case fatality rate is varies based on age, but there's no doubt about it. It's occurring with a brisk frequency, particularly in people of advanced age, 15%, 20%, 25% in some series. The event is occurring quickly and in large numbers. And there are a number of things, there's no shortage of things that have putative hypotheses why they might help. In fact, there are more things that keep being dreamt up of course, acolabrutinib is being tested and um, selenexor, of course, so who, who who has not looked at selenexor and thought, you know, that's a drug to try for COVID. I mean, obviously that would be a logical step, um, and, but you know, people are trying all sorts of things. And the way to do it is a randomized controlled trial and you can power your trial for mortality. And if you commit and accrue people, with very loose inclusion criteria and do a large, simple trial like recovery, you can do it really quickly and get 11,000 people as the UK investigators proved. So Didier Raoult is incorrect that it takes too long. Didier Raoult is also incorrect that we don't do randomized trials for hydroxychloroquine because it is a parachute. Um, A parachute is a drug that improves survival from 99.999% to 0%, near 0% to one death per 100,000 jumps or something like that. You know, every time I say that number, I get another email from some parachutist who says that I'm slightly off. And you know what? I don't care. What the actual number is you parachutists because that's not the point the point is that it's a huge effect size it's an analogy it's not that no one's talking about parachutes all the time we're talking about interventions with light switch effect sizes that you don't need randomized trials for and in fact didier Raoult had a way that he could have done that if he picked people who were on ECMO and gave them hydroxychloroquine and gave 10 people that and they all survived and then doctors in New York gave it to 10 people and they all survived and nobody died of COVID anymore that we were giving hydroxychloroquine it would be a light switch but it wasn't like that at all people who were giving it had no idea if it they, they couldn't even tell if they felt like it was making a difference and that's the common scenario for medicines we don't have parachutes parachutes don't parachutes don't grow on trees like pears at a pear farm parachutes they're not all over the place in biomedicine they are few and far between Biology's complicated hitting the ball out of the park is very rare it's very rare in medicine biomedicine of the millions of things we do it's probably occurred in less than 100 cases that you have a true parachute so you know he's incorrect and his own quasi-experimental data was not consistent with the parachute effect. So he's also wrong there. Um, The last thing he's wrong about is this statement, quote, all things being equal, the best external ethically acceptable comparators are historical arms. The reason he's wrong about that is that we do have comparisons of interventions that were concluded to be beneficial based on historical controls. In other words, I give it to 50 people now and I compare it to what 50 people did five years ago. Those interventions appear to be positive in a astonishingly large percentage of the time, 77% in a famous paper by Sachs and colleagues. When replicated in randomized control trials, they were positive just 20% of the time. In other words, things that look good in historical controls, maybe only one in four or one in three actually do work. I think what people don't understand here is that when you are in an epidemic situation, When you're in any situation in medicine, the premium to know what actually helps is immense. When you do studies in a time-sensitive situation that don't add knowledge, you're just wasting everyone's time. You're not helping anyone. You're just wasting everyone's time. You're squandering an opportunity. If a house is on fire and the flames are picking up steam, you might say, we don't have a lot of time to do something before we know it, the whole house will be burned down. You could go and get some water and start hosing down the house or call the fire department, get them, connect that fire hydrant, and start hosing down the house. But that might, but that requires, but that requires coordination. That requires the commitment that that's the best strategy. Or you could just stand there and blow on the house. Just blow on it. And that's what they're doing with uncontrolled studies. They're just <laughs> blowing on the house and saying, "We don't have time to call the fire department." Well, you know what? They might co- it might take them too long, but if you don't call them, you blowing on the house, not going to do anything. And similarly, when you do studies that just don't give you anything useful, you have no idea if you helped or hurt. You're wasting everyone's time. Um And you know, I I, I guess what really baffles me is that you know why why am I telling uh, a scientist who you know is in his 60s um you know who's had a long career why we need to do randomized trials it, he didn't he didn't pick up that pearl earlier in his career so i mean you know in short this is a sad sad paper from a sad person who did a great deal of disservice you know he's going to be on the top of the list there's there's a big spot reserved on that list for a colossal screw up and then around that colossal screw up there's going to be satellite screw-ups and and that'll be didier Raoult, and that will be the the Surgosphere fiasco and uh that's going to be one of uh, the next things we talk about so on that positive note thank you to sophie for this um very fascinating fascinating policy forum article that i wholeheartedly disagree with that cites the robert Ye paper as i predicted it would be cited grossly misused see that's 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 what it's going to be cited for for the to the The rest of time, it will be cited by people who don't want to do randomized trials. And that's the problem with that paper, which I think I discussed on a prior podcast. On that positive note, we'll shift to the next topic. PPIs and uh, COVID 19. You know, the authors are back and they have a lengthy rebuttal to some of the concerns that were raised. And of course, this is the paper where interestingly, it had, you know, six, maybe eight times the number of people taking an online survey who had COVID than Americans who actually had COVID at that time. Among people with COVID, there was an astonishingly high percent in Latinx groups which that itself wouldn't wouldn't be too surprising, except those people who had COVID and many of them did not have beyond a high school education. And they simultaneously were in households that had over $200,000 a year in income. And the authors are back and they're back with their rebuttal. And they've done a bunch of sensitivity analyses for people who signed up to the survey late. And those late people might have been um, not fully forthright in the answers, and therefore, even if we exclude them, however, we still find a dose response, so we believe the results are reliable. We also think that there are a lot of Latinx households that are multi-generational. Those households, even though some people might not have beyond a high school degree, there's somebody else in the house who's bringing a lot of sizable income, so they have a cumulative income over $200,000. There's quite a, quite a tale they've woven for why their data should still stand. But the overall conclusion that they haven't come to is that they ought to take down their paper um and then i noticed that there was a journal club about this paper and in the journal club i saw people talking about whether or not you can really trust an odds ratio that's less than four and i was like you don't need to talk about the odds ratio you don't need to talk about colliders and confounding when The claim that's been tossed out there is that these data are not real. They are falsified. They're lies. When that's the claim that's on the table, we don't need to get into the nuances of the study. We really need a serious commitment to ask, is that true? And you don't answer, is it true? Are people lying on my survey by doing sensitivity analyses in the set of data that you believe is Compromise comparing to the set you believe is not compromised. You don't know how deep the rot is. And the only way to know how deep the rot is is to get to the data itself. Is to go all the way back to the beginning and find out who were the people who filled the survey and contact them and just do a spot fact check. Here's what I'd suggest. You take 10% of the people who filled out your survey and you call them up. Or, you know, if you have the ability, you, you knock on a door, you call them up. You call them up and you start to get, and then you ask a bunch of follow-up questions to try to verify if what you get is true. And if what you find is 10% or 20% of your spot check, COVID cases check, um, you can't verify they had COVID. It, you can't verify that, they, that even though they have only high school education, they are in a household with 200,000 income. If you start to get irregularities in the spot check of the data... You got to pull the whole paper. You see, the issue here is if the data is valid, you got to go to the data. You can't dance around this issue. And I guess at the end of the day, there are so many people who independently looked at this and thought, this is really not right. And they've all said it online. And I just, I don't understand why the authors in the journal and everyone, nobody wants to really take it seriously. Um... It's a serious claim that there is a fundamental rot in the data set. Uh, it's a claim that requires adjudication. I mean, I'm trying to think of an analogy. If there was a if if you discovered that um there's a lab researcher who committed a spectacular fraud, Then somebody might say, boy, this person published four papers in this other person's lab two years ago. We got to go back and double check. And they'll go back to the notebooks and say, like, do we have notebooks? Do we really have original Western blots here? Is there any potential for Photoshopping? And then they might say, you know what? This is really kind of, you know, this person, something happened. We'd just be better off replicating these experiments. Let's get another postdoc to do it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that people do all the time when there are these kinds of big claims being made that the the rot could be potentially deep that's the sort of honest way to deal with it um i think the 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 not appropriate way to deal with it is the way these authors are dealing with it um you know it's embarrassing a little bit to not have noticed that there's some weird things in the data set and to not have raised that and try to flesh that out beforehand Um, When you go get a new online company doing an online survey, that's paying people. Um, The other issue is that there's a really nice thread that somebody put about how um, she, as a postdoctoral scientist had a survey um, that the bots invaded and, and bots invading surveys, especially surveys that pay money. That's a thing. That's a common thing that, that these bots are completing surveys inaccurately in in the hopes of gaining money or gaming the system. Um, So, you know, with all that going on, I think that the burden of proof has to be uh, held by the authors to prove that these data are are valid. Um, let's say even hypothetically, you had a perfect data set. You had a, you really know who got COVID, who didn't get COVID, nationally representative sample, PCR proven COVID, you know, trying to link a medication with COVID is still a very slippery problem. And I'm happy to discuss all the sort of epidemiologic concerns there, but I refuse to discuss it for this paper that hasn't even cleared the, I'm not sure if the data are real part. And, you know, I think that them having that sort of journal club just gives a false legitimacy to the idea that this is a paper that we can discuss like any other paper. It's not. It's a paper that a number of people have said, we are not sure your data are truthful. And they have an obligation to prove the data are right. And that means going all the way back to the people who are filling out the survey and verifying it at that level. It's not sensitivity analyses after the fact with a potentially flawed data set where you don't know how deep the rod is. That's not sufficient. And I found their rebuttal to be not sufficient. And, you know, when they start to conjure up stories that, well, it's possible that they're multi-generation households and somebody else has a lot of income, even though the person... Um, you know, and it's not even wealth, it's income. Somebody else in the household has income of $200,000, even though uh, the person who's filling out the survey doesn't have a high school degree. When they start to conjure up that kind of story, you know that somebody's like not being a straight shooter because the most likely explanation is that people are bullshitting on a form. That's the most likely explanation. It was, it still is. You need to prove it's not the case. Until you prove it's not the case, withdraw your paper. As somebody pointed out that, you know, it says something that when you, when you somehow feel like you miss the good old days of Surgisphere, where in a short period of time, the authors retracted their paper in the good old days of Surgisphere. Um, you know, now that doesn't happen like it used to. So on that positive note, we'll turn to the third listener question. All right. This question is by Ken Noguchi, who is a friend of the show... I think he's a plenard. I'm going to say he's a plenard, and if if Ken disagrees, he'll have to tweet, I'm not a plenard. But Ken writes, at plenary session, question for the pod. What keeps you in academic medicine research despite all the negatives that you highlight on the pod? On the podcast, listening to your podcast makes me less enthusiastic and more cynical towards pursuing research, and I'm not sure that's the right response. (laughs) Ken. Um, <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. I was just telling some of my friends that I was going to do this podcast later and I, I have to answer this question because I said I would answer it. Um, and they're like, well, what are you going to say? And I was like, well, I guess I have to tell the truth um, insofar as, as one can, can tell the truth, but I guess I'll try to be as honest as I can um, because, you know, what else What else do people listen to this this podcast for? um okay so it's a good question i guess i would say a few things to be very clear i mean i mean one you know why am i negative about academic medicine i think that um as as listeners know that um it's a place that um is surprisingly astonishingly non-academic in the sense that there are many people who have successful careers who Trainees uh, seek to emulate um, who uh, aren't really academics. They don't really understand how data is generated and interpreted, and how conclusions should be drawn from that data. Um, they don't really—they aren't really committed to that that process. They like the trappings. They like giving lectures and. and 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 repeating talking points that other people repeat and participating in studies where mostly you see patients on a trial and then the medical writer helps write it for you and the statistician helps analyze it for you and you know you get the slides that the company helps make for you and you give the oral session and then people start to praise you and give you the cme events that themselves are sponsored by the company and you get the consulting opportunity where you can go and tell the company something that they already know and that's no surprise to anybody um and you get to say what they want to hear and vice versa. Uh, I mean, they fall into that sort of trapping. And that's a huge thing in in oncology. I also think that people who really care about teaching trainees, um, who care about trying to teach students, uh, they're, I don't want to say they're thwarted, but they're certainly not rewarded um, in in most of my experience. Um, So I guess maybe it might be useful to try to answer this question in two moments in time. The first moment was when I was coming out of fellowship and I took my first faculty position at OHSU, where I was for three years up until, you know, really just a few weeks ago. And I really, you know, haven't been in in my new position long enough to even have a sense, especially with all the sort of things going on right now. So I have no sense of what it will be like going forward, but there's some things that keep me optimistic, which I'll come to at the at the end. Uh, but when I finished my fellowship and I took my first position, I guess, to be honest, like a lot of people, I mean, I didn't really know a lot about anything other than academic medicine. You know, I trained at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. That was my terminal training program. Um, you know, we have roughly 10 to 13 fellows a year and where they go is roughly, maybe one goes for pharma, one goes to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, um, maybe half stay at NIH, maybe in a, on a typical season for further training or, or to join one of the teams there. Um, and then the other half go into um, academic medicine, maybe one um, every other year goes into private practice or something like that. They're very few. And I guess so my knowledge of private practice was limited. My understanding of the salaries, how the incentives are structured, what exactly they do was deeply limited. I knew a lot about what people in the academy do. And I guess I would say that even though I had some elements of cynicism, I had had the good fortune of always being connected with some physicians in academic medicine who I really, really liked. Obviously, at University of Chicago, I um, spent a good deal of time chasing after adam cifu um to pick his brain and he's someone i still admire who is in an academic setting and um, manages to resist um you know all of the things i think are corrosive and manages to do all of the things i applaud Uh, you know he's a consummate clinician a great teacher really thoughtful scholar and and deep thinker and somebody who i really like um working with and writing with because i think he's really thoughtful Um, and, and so, you know, he, he was a great role model. And so I said, you know, maybe I could stay in the Academy and and be like Adam. Um, the other persons I think of, um, at Northwestern, when I, when I trained, there were, there were just really many faculty, uh. Gentlemen, uh H. G. Munchie, who's just a fantastic hemonk doctor, Dave Neely, uh Robert Hershtick, who writes the wonderful stuff for piece of My Mind column. I mean, these are all academics who I, you know, still admire, who have a really nice balance, who have never fallen prey to any of the sort of problems I lay out on this podcast. Um there are certainly many others who's, who I'm forgetting in both those places. Um, and then I moved to the NCI where there's a larger than life presence of Tito Foho, who was the program director, who was, you know, one of the first people to hit on the cost of cancer drug problem, who is hyper knowledgeable and critical about every cancer drug study. You know, I'd like to say that Tito is like, you know, if Tito had a podcast, if that were something that he'd want to do, it would be like plenary session, but in addition to all of the statistical thinking about the trial itself, he'll tell you everything about the molecular development of a drug. He'll tell you what were the preclinical studies, why that led to advancement, why he wouldn't have taken the compound forward. You know, he would have he would have he would have brought all that pharmacology into it pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics He'd bring all the basic science in because he's a card-carrying laboratory scientist. And those are the kind of lectures he gave us. And so for me, you know, uh, Tito and Susan Bates, um, who ran um, a, a team at the NCI, were really um, two people who I greatly admired and I thought, um, you know, really were, again, avoiding all the sorts of pitfalls I describe on this podcast. So I guess part of the reason I made the jump to stay in academics was I didn't know any any world outside of the academy. And I had been blessed that at every stage of my training, I always had um, a role model who I felt like I, you know, was a 100% supporter of. So then I moved to my first faculty position. And, you know, when you are finally faculty, I think um, you start to learn th- more than you knew before. Um, you start to understand Uh, how much they pay faculty and how much they don't um, and uh, what are the things that drive pay and incentives at the institution and, um, you know, I can't speak for every place but, you know, for the experience I had was that, um, you know, clinical revenue clinical volumes drive the majority of uh of even academic oncology salaries um that that, that no one to my knowledge is really incentivized to write thoughtful papers or anything like that they're incentivized to see more patients in clinic and if anyone works in an academic practice that's different i mean my the only other difference i had was at nci where nci is truly a place where there is no you know there's no sort of incentives at all. Uh, The incentive is to really do good science and you're given a lot of free time and opportunities. It's a different sort of system, a governmental system. Um, But it might to some degree suffer from the opposite problem, which is that in a place where there are uh, no real incentives, um, that it might suffer from the problem that because there are few incentives that a lot of people can linger for a great deal of time rather unproductively and not really get any push uh, to push them uh, to do something or to make some space for some junior colleague. Uh, so that may be one of the pitfalls of such a system. Um, so anyway, so, you know, my experience was that the Academy had, um, you know, a unique set of interests, um, more than, of course, the place I was at. I saw that um, the, the, the hottest commodity in the oncology market was somebody who had a lot of connections with industry and every institution is always trying to recruit a head of GI, a head of GU, a head of whatever. And they want somebody who knows all the drug companies to work with and bring them trials. And those trials have massive overhead so they can, you can, you can one, often be profitable from the trials itself, but two, you have that great sort of market advantage of why is somebody going to go to your center and not the local community doctor because you have trials that they don't have and, you know, you can kind of play that game of whether or not those trials are really better, but maybe we could advertise as if they are. So, I mean, that was the sort of impression I got. And then the other thing that, you know, I learned um, with some more experience was that at least in oncology, I felt that, um, you know, as that, that the incentive to be a good teacher, uh, a good mentor um, to people, uh, which is something that I'm, I am care about, uh, that is non-existent. Uh, and so, you know, I, you know, you mentor, you know, I, I can't, I don't even know the number, but somebody can look it up on my website. You know, how many people who I've co-authored papers with who were trainees who came to me looking for a project. It's, I'm, th- I'm sure it's the majority of the papers I've written. Um, and, you know, I taught classes and, you know, all of that was really sort of unrewarded um work by the institution i mean there's i had you know no clinical time to do that i mean there's no fte allocated to teach my class i did that like the way you might go to spin class after work uh you know that's your hobby my hobby was uh you know uh in the month of january i taught uh appraisal of clinical literature class um and so i guess um one of the things that I think further concerned me about academic medicine was that this is a place that ought to have a commitment to teaching, and it appears that the incentives are not structured in that way at all. It's a commitment to generating low-credibility trials and putting people on low-credibility trials. That's the commitment. That's where the money moves. And the commitment to teaching and being critical of trials and critical of paradigms and critical of things, um, to using one's noggin. That is not represented in terms of how money flows through the system. It's not incentivized. Um, And so that gave me a a deep cynicism, Ken. Um, And uh, so I share your cynical take. So where did I go from there? And then I guess the next jump. I suppose I had come to the conclusion that I would be interested in knowing what other positions are out there. And this time, unlike the first time, I did apply very broadly to private practice jobs, many private practice jobs, I think statistically more private practice jobs than academic jobs, and then a few academic jobs. I um, was excited about, and I am excited about the position that I now hold, um, because of a few advantages. I'm in epidemiology biostatistics. I'm at an institution that um, my survey of every single person I've talked to has revealed to me that there is a huge commitment to education and I and I do see that that there are people all around me right now um, who are take a lot of pride in the classes they teach and the job they're doing in terms of teaching and conveying information um, they take a great deal of pride at it and they are rewarded for it and they are given time and space to do that and so that you know that is something that I think was is a huge positive. That I'm excited to learn more about. And I hope to participate in all those things, because that's something that, you know, doing this podcast is I, you know, sort of a, a spinoff of the way I like to teach. I mean, it's obviously not teaching. It's not interactive, as it ought to be. Um, and uh, and it, it it's not as much. And I don't learn as much because people don't push me as much as in the class. But, uh, you know, it gets at the same thing. But at the same time, I also applied to a number of private jobs. And um, what did I know this time? So now, finally, after a few years, you get wiser. Um, you you learn, as a senior faculty member once told me at the NCI, that your first job is a five-year job because you don't really understand how things work. Um, and so, you know, I started to look. And um, and I'll tell you, um, I uh, there's a lot I liked about it, a lot I liked about private practice. Um, it was... You know, there's certainly many practices that really do deliver, I think, good patient care. Um, that there uh, are busy doctors, they have a lot of patients to see. Um, and they are really want to do high value things. Uh, they don't want to do things that are marginal or, or frivolous, they want to have good conversations, they want to do the right thing. And so I was really impressed. Um, and in the United States, there's a, a huge pay differential, uh, often like uh, massive. Um, and so uh, uh, that as somebody who comes from, you know, a house with not a lot of money growing up, uh, that is something that is uh, motivating. And I guess I would say that the the final thing uh, came to, um, you know, it probably was much, much, much closer than people think. I mean, my ideal position is if I could do patient care for a good chunk of my time, but also having some small amount of time to do some of these other things that I think are interesting, like um, some of the research projects I do, which are all meta research, which I'm kind of curious to do, and some of the stuff I do here on the podcast, which I which I do find interesting to some degree. Um, so if I could preserve like a day, day and a half, two days to do that kind of stuff, um, you know, then I'd be really comfortable jumping into one of those jobs. And I guess to be perfectly honest, I think um, there was one position that I was really close to taking, um, really wonderful practice, great colleagues, really sharp oncologist, um, did broad hemonc. And again, so that's one thing that's different in academics. You often don't do broad hemonc, but in private practice you do. But you know, listeners of this podcast might get the sense that I I like doing broad hemunk. I like it all from benign heme to the. I mean, I I do think that's quite interesting, and I so I have no objection to doing that. In fact, I per- probably prefer it. Um, so that was enticing about this. Um, the compensation was really deeply enticing. Uh, amazing. Uh, the colleagues were great. Um, it's really well run practice. It runs like like amazingly well it's not clunky like many systems can be in the academy runs like super super smooth um so the one position that i looked at was geographically in a place that i wasn't ready to go to that was the bottom line it was geographically in a place i wasn't ready to go to i thought i could live a ways away and commute but that was kind of struck down and so that kind of led to um going away from that position The other one was geographically exactly where where I wanted it to be, Um, had uh, really sort of maybe not as perfect as that other practice, but another private group that was really kind of a a sweet spot. Maybe there would be a little time for me to do some of these other things I like to do. Um, And I was really interested in it. And it was geographically, you know, in in a very acceptable place. Uh, but uh, never never came through and so then uh, I got this this terrific offer here which um, you know at a place that I felt like had a different philosophy about teaching a real commitment to supporting that um, as well as sort of just a track record of really stellar top-notch epidemiology and biostatistics which were kind of parts of you know a huge chunk of what I care about and what I do that is often underrepresented in, in pure oncology divisions and so I said you know it's it's worth a shot you know and uh and uh, so far I've had uh, you know I've only been a few weeks in uh, but it uh, has really felt like a, a terrific a terrific uh, call um that I guess I get I'm getting to do a lot of of what I want to do and I'm getting the sense that people are very positive about the work they do and and they really they really care about it. Um so that is kind of a long answer to your question, which is what keeps me here. I guess the answer is also the just the simple truth is that uh you know, I hope my career is not over yet. I am literally only 5 years into the job. Um but that feels different depending on where you are. I was recently you know, when I was in medical school, there was a faculty member who I thought was a really sharp person, and I looked up where this person is recently, and um, this... This person has moved on to a new job. Uh, this was somebody who, when I was a student, I always admired and looked up to, uh, even though this person has a totally different field and nothing to do with anything I do. Um, but I always admired this person. I admired the way this person carried themselves. And I admired this person for this person's commitment to medical students and taking that time to like talk to us a little bit more than the average person. Um, and I looked up this person. They were, they were you know senior person at a different university now um and i looked back and i saw that when this person was um you know supervising me as a medical student um this person was only 5 years out of training out of out of residency and i remember thinking uh that i thought of this person as a very senior person this is a senior person uh, but they're only five years out of residency. I'm only five years out of fellowship. And so I guess I think one's perspective of that changes a great deal because now I view myself as a junior person uh, because I'm only five years out of fellowship. But uh, in fact, others may view me as a senior person, much as I view this person as a senior person. So I guess that's the thing about getting older. You don't see it coming, but it happens. Um, so I guess my point with that is, is that you know, careers are long, they're 30 years. And uh, I think that there's plenty of time Um, uh, where, you know, who knows what the future will bring. Um, I think that the real bonuses to act to the academy are you get to work with really sharp young people who often challenge you and get you thinking better. That's one, two, they often come and help work on projects with you and they do a better job than you could do. And they bring more to that than you can do. Those are really the pluses three. Even though all of the, the interests, the incentives are ruinous, I think, overall, really ruinous, um, they have always people who create pockets that buck those incentives. Adam, you know, the people I mentioned a minute ago were all people who've found a place in the academy doing what they want to doing and, and never compromising and not being part of all those sort of forces that we don't like doing bad science just to get grants and all those things. These people don't participate in that. And so there are always a few people you can look up to um, and, and and still aspire for. Um, and and hopefully you find yourself you know, in a place where people um, at, at least have some commitment to, to those sorts of things, which is wanting to teach people and really get them thinking, even if they don't always agree with you, at least kind of push their thoughts, wanting to um, question what we're doing and ask why. Um, and, and to teach that and so I think you know I think that those are the reasons to stay uh, the downsides are many uh, no doubt about it particularly if you are like me a specialist um, you know who um, at, actually really does enjoy practicing uh monk broadly and you know somebody who didn't grow up with a lot um, then the financial trade-offs are, are really large and So I guess I would say that in my own sort of life, I think like a lot of people, my first job was really inertia. I didn't know anything. Uh, I didn't understand anything about how money flows through hospitals and divisions and why people do what they do. I think the moment you you start your first job, if you want to really understand what's going on, whether it's private practice or academics, the moment you understand how money moves through, what makes people more money, you'll understand everything. Everyone's behavior, what they're doing, the reason people double book clinics and the reason people avoid seeing patients, it's all, uh, linked to the way in which the incentives are in that space. I mean, I've, I've almost never seen any counter example to that. The way in which the current is flowing is all driven by the incentives. And so the moment you sort of understand the incentives, you really get to see the lay of the land. And so that was my first thing. I knew nothing. And thus I stayed in the Academy. I had had people in my life who I, I, I did admire. And so I thought maybe I could carve such a space. Um, But then my second move really was much more of a nail biter. I think it much more of a a really, really were it not for uh, just a tip of fate. I mean, if that that really sort of really wonderful practice had just geographically been a little bit, just a little bit different or a little bit more permissive for me commuting. Um, If um, another option that wasn't geographically in the right spot had just come through a little bit sooner. Um, if timing had been a little bit different, uh, it so easily could have been different. And I so easily could have been outside of the Academy. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that all the research I do as nice as it is to be in the Academy, um, you know, it doesn't require a lab. It doesn't require bench space. It doesn't require any, a lot of equipment. It's really a computer and that sort of stuff. And so it can really be done in a lot of spaces. All right, Ken Plannard. I don't know if that answers your question, but, uh, it says as, as close as I think, uh, close as I think I can get. So on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Bashal Gaywali. Okay, I'm back on Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Bashal Gaywali. Bishal, it's great to see you again.
1: It's so nice to see you. It has it has been a while.
0: It's been a while, but you're back here to talk about some recent work. But uh, before we get into that, we were just chatting before we came along about Twitter, and you know I noticed you had uh, <laughs> you had an interesting tweet. Um, here's your tweet from a couple of days ago. Uh, there are three types of experts on Med Twitter: fear mongering experts virtue-signaling experts, and patting oneself on the back experts. So... <laughs>
1: Don't you think that's, a, that's an accurate description?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, you know how they say retweet isn't endorsement? But in this case, my retweet was endorsement. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's so accurate. So I wonder if you unpack it a little bit. So um, what do you mean by fear-mongering? Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh...
1: Yeah, first a disclaimer that I'm not an expert. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I have been seeing lately that MedTwitter has changed a lot since I first joined. Yeah. I guess I joined uh, in the fall of 2015. Yeah. And in these five years, uh, there have been there has been an increase in the number of academics or physicians who have joined Twitter. And and, and that's a good thing. It helps. Uh, to put forward the debate and it helps to bring a lot of different issues uh, into the public and yeah. helps public discussion. But recently, uh, you know, the the whole reason I was interested in joining Twitter in the first place was because I thought I could follow the experts, <laughs> quote unquote experts, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I would I would learn from the tweets. They would put something very thought provoking. They would they would put out something that would inspire me for my next project or that would inspire me to think differently yeah but nowadays it seems like i can just predict what the next person is going to do it next yeah Uh, and uh and and it's not uh thought-provoking at all and as i mentioned some of the experts are purely fear-mongering experts. Yes. So they're, 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 they're going to tell all the bleak stories and all the pessimistic things that can happen. And and as an audience, it would feel like, you know, you're, you're doomed. Like there is no hope in life. And, uh, you know, uh, if you are healthy, that means you are just waiting for the diagnosis of a disease and you are going to die. If, if you already <laughs> have disease, then you're already in a bad place. So, you know... Uh, it's one thing to persuade people about any intervention that you think is a good intervention, and you can do that with evidence. Yeah. And you can convince very well with the evidence. And sometimes, you know, you might not have a good evidence, but uh, the risk-benefit trade-off might favor exactly. doing the intervention just to right. be on the safe side. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and and let's talk about some of the interventions that we have been doing for controlling yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, you know, lockdown, or yeah. face mask, yeah. and things like that. And, okay, the evidence might not be strong, but you would rather do something and are on the side of doing rather than not doing it. Sure.
0: And you could tell that. You could just say that. Just say that. Just say that. That's fine. Yeah, I know. Why is that so hard to say? Just say that. Don't make up... Bullshit! All the time—it's unbelievable. Yeah.
1: And and people would gladly accept that, and then people would have no confusion about you know. Oh, two months ago you said this thing, and now you—why are you changing your stance? I don't see any new paper coming out about this. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, right. So you know, but if if you clearly said upfront that these are the risks. These are the potential benefits, and it's better to, or on the side of doing this, and 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 reduce the harms. than not doing anything, and 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 people would be absolutely fine with that. I think.
0: I think. But, yeah. Yeah. People, people, people but, like honesty, but you know, I'll give yeah. you one example of your fear mongering. I saw somebody say something yeah. like, um, "For all of the for all of the politicians who are thinking about opening schools, uh, how mm-hmm. many children are you willing to bury <laughs> in graves oh and put god. in body bags before you oh open?" And I was oh like, my "Oh god. my god!" And I was like, first of all." That's That's not a helpful thing to say that's a very ignorant and foolish thing to say because let me tell you something in the best of times when you open schools there are Mm -hmm. going to be some people who pass away in automobile accidents on the way to school you know that's a Mm -hmm. risk of schools but of Mm -hmm. course there are benefits of schools as well having schools is always risks and benefits you want to be perfectly safe you can sit in your house wrap yourself in bubble wrap and not do anything Mm -hmm. okay now Mm -hmm. the question is opening schools it's a very difficult question. I don't even yeah. think I know the answer. You know, that's what I tweeted yeah. the other day yeah. is that uh-huh. I, I, I at least want to have the humility to admit that I don't even I don't even have the tool set to answer the question because I'm just a doctor, mm-hmm. oncologist, yeah. drug policy. Yeah. But to answer this yeah. question, you have to be a uh, a psychologist to know how mm-hmm. children develop and grow. You have to be a yeah. sociologist. You have to be a historian. You have to be a tr- an infectious disease expert. You have to be an economist. You have to be a politician. You have to be a public policy expert. You have to be, you know, there, you have to have all... All these experts brought in, and to bring in your expert and your 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 um your way of thinking. What are the trade offs? What are the unanticipated consequences? What does it mean for the children's um success, their longevity, uh, the risk to children? You know, it's still uh, honestly, yeah. it's it's on the low side. The real risk is probably to transmission to parents and and uh, other people who take care of the kids. Um, could, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you could accept the trade off. You could say that, you know, there are potential downsides. There are there are a lot of downsides to not opening schools. Right? Yes. Uh, and that's why we open schools every year exactly yes exactly yeah Yeah. Uh, but this year things are different because of the pandemic so you could say these are the real downsides to not opening a school that we really acknowledge like especially in us there there are so many people uh, there are so many children who will not even get food if they don't go to school
0: exactly yeah so
1: you could say these are the potential downsides and we totally acknowledge this but at this time maybe the risks outweigh the benefits of opening the school, So maybe we should we should postpone it for a month or so. But you can't just say that people who want to open these schools are, are just uh, willing to willing to kill children. That's that's a very uh, th- that reminds me of the way you know people would put up the debate about screening yes. cancer screening yes. before the pandemic times when yes. we those yeah. good
0: times when we debate about cancer <laughs> yeah, screening. Those good times, yeah. They would say yeah. that if you don't support screening you just want you these people, people to die. Yeah. You just want yeah. them you want them to die not just you're killing yeah. them you want them <laughs> (laughs) to die. And they say, well, you know what? You don't have all cause mortality benefit. They don't want to get into that. They just want to say you're, you're ill motivated. Yeah. It reminds me of that, but I think it's different in the sense that, you know, screening, I do think one person can be knowledgeable about it to, to reach a conclusion, screening mm-hmm. you and I can read the papers. We're doctors. Mm-hmm. We understand epidemiology. We can read the papers. We can take it all in. But mm-hmm. schools is even more than screening because schools is um, the, yeah. the 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 not just the the sort of the prosperity of children, their social well being, their physical well being, their mental well being, yeah. and it and yeah. it has it has impacts on different races and wealths in different ways. Minority children are going to be hurt the most. People whose you know whose parents yeah. don't have as much money and not well connected. I think it's it's just. So much, and then for a doctor to go on Twitter and just blithely yeah. say, "How many dead children do you want?" What, what? That is disgusting to me. I mean, that's not that's not it's, using your brain.
1: You know, you know opening schools is not an intervention at the individual level. Yes. It's not like shared decision making. Right? Exactly. It's a public health intervention that that affects millions of people. And for for making any decision like that, I mean, we are not in that role of decision making. Exactly. But, uh, to put out any any uh, definitive statements like that, we should consider what other people might be facing. Like I might be rich and I might afford private tuition for my children, and I could still go to work, and, and someone will come and take care of my children, and I, I have enough money to pay for that. But there are so many people who, uh, right now, my my wife is not working because my my daughter's daycare got closed, mm-hmm. so my wife needs to take care of my daughter. Uh, but uh, you know, there there might be so many there might be so many people out there who. Uh, for whom the only way they can go to work might be sending their kids to school.
0: Exactly. And if
1: the kids don't go to school, someone needs to be home and take care of them. I mean, there is no no answer here. I I I, I don't know what the correct answer is. But yeah. at least we have to we have to acknowledge that, uh, that there are people with uh, different characteristics and and different groups of people when we are making such a public health intervention that affects so many people at the same time and. I think, uh, yeah, I don't have the confidence to make any definitive statements uh, regarding this.
0: Now, let's Uh, talk about the next part, virtue signaling. You said that there are virtue (laughs) signaling experts. These are the experts who are good at telling you all the things they did that, you know, really, uh, you know, preach to the choir, appeal to the base. Uh, You know, what do you mean by the virtue signaling experts?
1: (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, you are going to get me into hot waters <laughs> yeah the second group of experts on, on mid twitter you'll see it's uh, as, as, you, as you perfectly described uh, people who are pitching to the choir and uh, you know uh, I guess it also connects with what we just discussed that we are not acknowledging things from the perspective of other people and we are just trying to promote what we think is a is a good idea or yeah. a good action. Yeah. It may or may not be backed by evidence, but we are just trying to show people how other people should be acting uh, based on how you are acting. Right. And, and and you are trying to put yourself as an example of how everybody should be like or how everybody should think like or how everybody should act like. Uh, and and if one really wants to dig into Uh, those particular statements then people will find that those are actually empty statements they are they are not backed by science they are not backed by evidence Um, and it's just uh, empty versus signaling and uh, I guess that's uh, yeah it's I guess a lot of uh, mid-twitter has degraded into feeling glorified about how many followers you have yeah and the whole point in every tweet from most of the experts. I, I don't want to say all the experts, but most of the experts is uh, about how this tweet will create lots of likes yes. and, and read tweets and they will clap for me, and 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 I'll increase my followers, and I'll be I'll be looked upon by the society as as, as someone who said such such great things, uh, like you know, uh, I don't know whether that has that is actually helping the debate or just helping people to get more and more polarized about issues.
0: Yeah, that's, I, you know, that's what I came to the conclusion of is that it's really polarized. I'll give you another example. There was the doctor who, I don't know, I don't know who this poor gentleman is. Um, but there's an unfortunate story of a gentleman. And I don't even know if it's true or not. But uh, by mm-hmm. based on what was posted, it was um, a gentleman who is from, I think, you know, a southern red state. And he had a number of tweets where he said that masks are, uh, stupid or mask are an infringement of his liberties um, mm-hmm. and that he doesn't want to wear masks and then later he may have had some posts on social media saying that he had a cough felt a little unwell then he had later Oh yeah I yeah. remember seeing that yeah then he had some yeah. posts saying that he was getting worse fevering uh, went to the mm-hmm. hospital and then um, somebody found that there was an obituary published for this gentleman so he yeah, passed away yeah. and it seems yeah, like it was unfortunate yeah, yeah it's very sad okay um it's very sad. And, um, and he's a young man, my goodness, the guy was like, like yeah. less than 40. And he has like yeah. children, a family parents, you know, it's a it's mm-hmm. a horrible tragedy. Um, so then some, some virtue signaling uh, doctor comes along and tweets this, you know, <laughs> yeah, tweets I this story. That. Yeah. And says, you know, look at this guy. This is what happens when you don't wear masks. Um, and I found that to be just so despicable. I mean, yeah, can yeah. you imagine, there, there are many things in life, many outcomes that may be influenced by your behavior. Maybe not. Maybe he could have done all those things. He could have lived in Seattle, a liberal place. He could have worn the mask. He could have been raised in a different culture where he voted for different people and he was a liberal and he believed in the masks and he wore the mask. He still might've died, right? You know, it, it, that, that might not have been a germane event. Maybe it changed, what was uh, the probability changes outcome? Who knows? But there are other yeah. things we do like that like smoking, you know, was the example I raised. And the smoking example was to show that there would be nobody, no doctor would have, no doctor is so indecent that they would post the picture of somebody who passed away of lung cancer and said, well, and and then a picture of them smoking and said, well, this is what happens when you smoke. That would be so um, crass, so despicable, so antithetical to the oath we take as physicians. And yet, In this time of COVID, people think it's acceptable to shame this young man who passed away for his statements on masks, which may or may not have contributed to his death and honestly are not really relevant. Um, This is a human being who died. Um, You shouldn't talk about him at all unless you want to say something nice. Uh, That was what I was raised, to how to speak about people who passed away. Um,
1: I was also very saddened when I saw that. Uh, I mean, you know, if it was something else, then people would be out there saying, this is just an association this does not mean exactly. yeah, and uh, you know things like that uh, uh, like like if something something exactly opposite had happened right a the person who always yeah. put on put yeah. on face masks right. never got out of the house yeah. but he still caught the disease and unfortunately passed away and if some if if some you know these uh, pseudoscience groups posted a story like that uh, you know this is a man who never got out who washed his hands put on mask but still, he got COVID and died. Uh, if a pseudoscience group put out something like that, would be would be something uh, to to pass that person, and we would say, "See, this is this is not uh, causation. You just
0: ah, uh, you're right. something yes. one if, event. And, if it went the yeah. other way, yeah. yeah, 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 you would quickly say that that doesn't prove it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> but here, like using that. Uh, uh, story to in fact shame the person and the identity of the person is known. Yes, if they show right? his
0: face and his name, it's yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And then like that person has a family, yeah. And then you're you're publicly telling this person in a way you are telling that he deserved to die, right? Yeah, which, which is which is so unbecoming of a physician or an academics or any 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 human, human being, being. Yeah, to be any human being. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I found that really, really uh, uh, sad. And and th- that's the reason you don't see me tweeting as often these days in, in COVID era as I used to in pre-COVID days. You yeah. know, like in pre-COVID days, I used to tweet about all the oncology studies and I used to tell this study is uh, not good, this study is good. And I used to tweet a lot. But in COVID days, I, I'm kind of uh, disappointed with med Twitter community as a whole. So I, I, I try to still stick to like oncology tweets, but even then, like I can't get away with what I see in my home field. Everybody tweeting about uh, COVID with the, the, the level of confidence that they have in their uh, statements and making those accusations for people who are not following that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm actually disappointed with uh, our community as a whole.
0: Yeah, well, here, here's my theory of what's going on. Um, because like you, I joined, I think, 2014, 2015-ish, and I've been mm-hmm. on for five years. So we, we've been on for the same period of time. When, when we started... The people who are, first of all, there was no med Twitter hashtag or whatever that we didn't have, you know, people didn't have Mm -hmm. that, but doctors found each other and we were talking about academic medical issues and, you know, there were some good discussions. I remember, you know, very vigorous discussions on cost of cancer drugs, drug approval standards that actually did get people of different points of view to comment about that. And it was maybe we didn't all change our minds, but it was something interesting for the audience, I think. Yeah, Um, yeah. What I think It has... did
1: give you a, a lot of good research ideas. Oh, yeah. Like, like conflicts of interest <laughs> disclosure on Twitter and things like that.
0: <laughs> oh, it gave me a lot of research ideas. Yeah, yeah. it did. It did. Uh, yeah. It gave me a lot of research ideas. Conflicts of mm. interest. Every time they said something about surrogate speed, drug <laughs> approval, that was a paper. You know, it gave me a lot of research ideas. Um, um, uh, oh, do doctors tweet more about drug company costs than about hospital costs? That, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that <laughs> yeah. Craig Garthway quote. I did a paper. and, and Yeah. Okay. So give me a lot of ideas. Um, but. So here's why it shifts, and this is, um, um, it shifted because more and more people joined, Mm -hmm. and 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 the people who joined took something that was more about technical issues within the field and made it more politics. See, politics is something different than medicine. In medicine, if you want to have an opinion on a ramucirumab, well, you can't just have an opinion; you have to read. You know, they're yeah. what, at least six FDA-approved indications, you're going to tell me in a minute, yeah. for ramucirumab. They're mm-hmm. randomized controlled trials. They have control mm-hmm. arms. They have certain mm-hmm. primary endpoints. They have certain magnitude yeah. of benefit. You need to know all that to have an opinion on ramucirumab. To have exactly. an opinion on whether or not Trump is good or bad, you mm-hmm. anyone can have that opinion. They watch mm-hmm. TV once, he's bad, he's good. You and you instantly fall into that camp. And mm-hmm. people on Med Twitter are, we have to admit, they are vigorously anti-Trump. They're on the left, political left. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I, I'm also on the political left too. I mean, you know, that's where I fall politically. But um, yeah. they're on the political left. Um, uh-huh. They're on the, I think, on the ideological end of the spectrum, probably pretty far out on the left. You know, they have, uh-huh. I think, very strong um democratic left beliefs. they are a
1: lot it's more... Just, just, uh, uh, but, I mean, uh, now that we're talking about politics, yeah. it's bizarre that people can't imagine that uh, someone could be anti-Trump, but let's say pro school opening for example yes
0: exactly like, uh, yes, so how can yes. that uh, yes.
1: how how can those i am not saying i'm i'm pro or anti anything but what what baffles me is how can those things be
0: mutually exclusive yes you know what it is you it's could, that yeah. some, some of the people who are anti school reopening may only yeah. be anti reopening just to stick a finger in trump's eye but just because he's trump <laughs> and just because you don't like him doesn't yeah. mean everything he does is wrong i mean maybe even a broken watch is right twice a day you know maybe he's yeah. right you know yeah. okay
1: I guess the better example is from hydroxychloroquine. Right? Yes, exactly. People wanted hydroxychloroquine I know. to fail. Yeah, they yeah. wanted
0: it. And you know what? They <laughs> almost sabotaged the trials because their rhetoric was, if you take hydroxychloroquine once, you'll have VT and die. You'll have VT and die. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was ridiculous. So, I mean, yeah. that's that's how polarizing he is, that people take more extreme views on, yeah, hydroxychloroquine, yeah. a great example. But what I want to yeah. say is that, you know, I, so I've noticed this. This has been creeping in. Politics has been creeping in. And m- many of the people who you have pointed out as virtue signaling, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, fear mongering, uh, fear-mongering. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: you know, they talk mostly politics. They're not talking medicine. In fact, I, mm-hmm. I say that I can barely find medicine in my feed. It's all politics. And it's politics yeah. from people who aren't who aren't don't study political theory? They're they're an arm. They're just like every doctor at a dinner party. That you know, a doctor uh-huh. at a dinner party. The the stereotype is they have an opinion on everything. They think they know everything, even though it's outside of their scope of expertise. And you have all yeah. these people on Twitter. And you know, Bishal, it fits with you know soft targetism. It fits with the politics, which uh-huh. is that it's so easy to have an opinion on these issues. You don't have to educate yourself. You don't have to read. It takes no mental energy, and you can be passionate and angry, and you can find your group of people, and they can support you, and then you go on Med Twitter. And everything you do is is trying to poke a finger in the eye of this guy that many people don't like. Um, yeah. and And people who are on who are doctors, who are on the right on issues, maybe not even the far right, but just just slightly center right, those people on Twitter, uh, they're going to get mauled. They're going to get, uh, you know, they're going to get the, the the mobs chew them up um, if they start saying things like schools, uh, you know, there, there are trade-offs involved. We need to consider those. Tra-. They're going to yeah. get attacked um, or yeah. um, sh- shutdowns have trade-offs or, or masks may have unintended consequences and, oh, no, they're going to get attacked, uh, you know, or, or to even suggest that the economy has something to do with human health. They're going to get attacked, yeah. you know. Um. So it's become, and like you, I mean, I think I would say, I don't know if I tweet less or not. I think I do when I looked at the stats recently, but I certainly look at it less. I used to look at it and enjoy looking at it. Now I just get... I just st- I don't look for days. I don't look at the damn website. Um, I may sometimes I have an idea. I tweet it and then I just go in, tweet it, and then let it go. You know, I don't even yeah, look to yeah. see what these people say. Um,
1: yeah, they, they, but they not only tweet about politics. Once in a while, they do they do tweet about medicine. That's when a new drug gets approved. <laughs> yeah, they, they, want to <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they want to congratulate everyone. They want to congratulate everyone. They they even do not look at the evidence. They just say this is a great day for our patients. Congratulations to Uh, everyone involved in this. And whenever some big name publishes a big paper in New England Journal, they just want to be in the good books and they just want to say, oh, congratulations to this amazing team. Uh, I don't know, like maybe they're hoping to be a co-author in the next paper. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think what it is, part of it is, is that, you know, it's maybe a mid-career or junior career faculty who Mm -hmm. was willing to be the first or last author on a drug company-sponsored study. And now yeah. the drug that they worked on, the paper that they published, has become an accepted FDA approval. So for your career, yeah. that's good. And so yeah. people are saying, oh, congratulations, you got um, you got Olaparib approved in in pancreas cancer with germline BRCA mutations. Great for you. And it's like, well, <laughs> too bad that that's not great for patients because we had to give a sugar pill control <laughs> arm instead of continuing full Firinox, And this yeah. drug is probably worse than that. Um, you know, nobody cares. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, that's what disappoints me is that these are people who the first the first thing a trialist should care about is, are the results of my study going to make life better for people with this disease? Not, yeah. are the results of my study going to get me a JCO paper and get me a plenary session? But they have forgotten that. That has been completely yeah. forgotten. And all they care about is their career. They don't even ask the question, what's best for patients? And that's why the only reason this po- podcast has any popularity in some quarters is that we're one of the few places where we actually try to say what's best for patients. And I know you try and, to do that you're writing. Yeah.
1: And, and I guess that's why my career is not flying. <laughs> I always I keep
0: shooting on my own foot. <laughs> I know. I know. That's why, I, was like, I know, that's why, I, that's why, as you know, I take a lot of, I take a lot of, um, it, behind closed doors, I take a lot of punishment for, for my views. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I mean, I guess, I, I guess not only do I get so disheartened about, um, COVID, um, like here's another example that PPI paper. You know this came out. Uh-huh. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, so did you see their response? The
1: biggest thing, the biggest thing that saddens me is when when big people in positions of power, editor in chief of big journals, they can't even accept that like, uh, they did the research in good faith. But it turns out that uh, yeah, like maybe the the, the participants uh, cheated. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. And uh, so why what? Well, why is it so difficult for people who are already in a position of power? Yeah. It will be difficult for, for people like me, in yeah. fact, yeah. because it can ruin my career. I'm an early researcher and I, it turns out that my research uh, was flawed, then I'll be pretty disheartened, right? But these are people who are already at the peak of their career. They are editors in chief of, of, of one of the topmost journals. And, uh, I, and, and the journals are supposed to teach all of us about ethical research practice, what you should be doing, what you should not be doing, what constitutes um, an error and things like that. And, and, and those very people, uh, instead of uh, accepting the criticisms that come from social media, First, they ask
0: you to write a letter to the editor instead of... Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> don't, don't tweet your concerns. Write a letter to the editor. Yeah. But you are the editor. You are the editor. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious.
1: That, that, yeah, that, that should be the best talk on Twitter ever. <laughs> The editor-in-chief himself tells write a little to the editor. (laughs) Yeah,
0: but you know, they're back now with their response, which and their response is basically, you know, we understand why some people out there think that a sizable portion of our data set is fraudulent. And that's because the data set found that um, Latinx families um, that did not have, Latinx participants that did not have even a high school education lived in households where the median income was over $200,000 a year, and they had COVID in really record numbers. We're here to perform a series of sensitivity analyses while we think these results don't disqualify the entire paper. but And so the response is this long article trying to justify why their paper shouldn't be retracted. But the easiest thing to do is, one, pick some handful, 10% of the participants, and go check, do, do they really have COVID and did they really have this household income? Just verify the fact. They don't want to do that. And they don't want to consider that the most likely explanation is not. They offer that yeah. it's most likely due to the fact that people are living in multi-generational households, even though they themselves don't have a high school degree um, and uh, somebody else in the household is making $200,000 a year and that person may, and they have COVID and, um, and they're also willing to fill out the survey. So these are all, all the things that they're hoping yeah, are true. Yeah. Um, the most likely explanation is that people are lying on the form. That yeah, was the, it's mo- yeah. still the most likely explanation. And you have not interrogated that. To interrogate that, you have to go check to see, did some mm-hmm. of these people, are they being honest? And they don't want to do that. And, and you're right. These are people in who are careers are well set. And you know what? I'll go even further, Bishal. They don't need to do this paper. This was a... Oh, I'm going to watch. I'm not going to say uh, exactly my... This was was not an important research question. I'm sorry. Um, No, I mean, it might be an important question, which is whether or not the widespread use of PPI predisposed people to getting COVID. But unfortunately, this method for answering the question is not going to be the reliable way to answer it. And so sometimes they're questions out there that you really are going to struggle to answer, you could ask that question for everything. Do ACE inhibitors yeah. make you more likely to get COVID? Uh, does PPIs make you more likely to get COVID? Hydroxychloroquine? Uh, 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 um, hydrochlorothiazide? I mean, every drug you could possibly take, you yeah, could ask, does yeah. it affect COVID? Yeah. Uh, but you have to think of rigorous ways to ask the question, or you're going to just find a sea of false positive results. And they don't have a rigorous way. Anyway.
1: The biggest problem is, uh, you know, with this particular study, it's not just like, a study that you just read and say, oh, it's flawed and you leave. Like, this has real consequences. Yes, right. The, this has a big headline saying, like, patients are afraid. They are taking PPI for, for a long time for GERD or, or whatever. And now now they're, they're scared that uh, they're going to catch COVID. So, this paper has real consequences. And when you know that your paper is going to have real consequences on real patients in in a scale of millions all over the world, then you have to be extra, extra careful.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's so, I feel so conflicted because on the one hand, I do think PPIs are widely over-prescribed and we probably need mm. a lot fewer PPIs. I'm sure you feel that way too. <laughs> um, yeah. You don't, A lot of people who are on PPIs don't need to be on PPIs. It may be difficult yeah. for them. They have to lower the dose slowly so they can wean themselves mm. off, but they don't need to be on PPIs. But that yeah. said- to to fear-monger, which is what this paper does, fear monger that yeah. if you take a PPI, you're going to yeah. be more likely to get COVID, um, especially when the data is so questionable if it's true or not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, somebody put it on in- the Internet. Well, I think David Cohen, the cardiologist, which was um, their methodology is basically a marketing survey. They're paying people on PayPal to complete the survey. And if you do that. You know, don't be surprised if people start lying on the survey because, you know, that's what people do. People if you don't. Yeah. yeah, What do I care what your survey shows anyway? Yeah. Yeah. All right. But I want to I want to come back to this point on politics and soft targets. And I want to put you down for the record.
1: (laughs) You're going to sabotage my
0: career. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking for 30 minutes. Nobody listens this far in the pod. We have data. No no one's still no one is no one continues to listen. Okay what Why do you think some people like to talk about these issues rather than get into the technical aspects of medicine?
1: <laughs> uh, the The parsimonious explanation is that it's difficult to get into the real details of medicine. Yeah. It's much easier to to just uh, you know go with the hard. Uh, a lot of the experts, uh, I see that they just repeat what the heart is saying, but they repeat it. To a larger audience, in a more emphatic way.
0: Yeah, more emphatically. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and and sometimes they, they put they just throw in some of their personal anecdotes uh, that makes it more emphatic because they have that anecdotes to share as a uh, as a part of being the physician. They uh, uh, my know,
0: patient. This happened to my yeah. patient. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, if like going into the details of the evidence and to actually discuss. Uh, the details and the nuances of the evidence, that's, that's a really difficult job. It takes, it takes quite a lot of time. Like yeah. people sometimes say that, uh, oh, like, you know, there is a new trial, let's say uh, the, the OLAPA even in, 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 in prostate cancer trial or, uh, you know, ADORA trial, uh, and then, um, you know, I say something and people say, oh, it's easy for you to, to, to say that. Uh, But actually, it's not. You have to go into the details of the trial. You have to uh, actually examine it. So, like, in order to uh, be confident about speaking on a particular trial, you have to know the whole ins and outs of that trial, right? And and, uh, that takes time. That takes uh, resources. Uh, You have to concentrate. Uh, It's not –
0: and compare that with tweeting – congratulations to the investigators <laughs> <laughs> or, or, yeah. or, um, you know, the latest dumb thing that some dumb politician did, you know, that's easy. Yeah. That's cheap. Yeah. 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 But that's, I mean, that's why it's devolved is that, um, uh, more people, more people joined. Um, it, be- it's become more political. The difference between politics and medicine is when you have, like, for instance, I think, um, y- um, I think a lap prostate cancer is a bad trial. Ian Tannock mm. came on this podcast and he said, um, "You know, uh, the Javelin study might be decent." And I thought, "I think Javelin mm-hmm. is a bad trial." So the thing here is that there—it's harder to make tribes because we may have legitimately have different views about some trials in politics. Yeah. You know, there's this sort of—you have to agree with the platform view or you get booted out. And there are all these sort of ways in which they herd you together. Yeah, yeah. but that's yeah. why it's devolved. I mean, it's just a—I I don't yeah, think. Yeah,
1: like uh, you, you give a good example, like. Proper science could be you You say that the Olaparib in prostate cancer uh, trial is bad, yeah. but Jablin is good. Yeah. That is proper science because you have looked into this study. Bad science or what b- politics is That's that happens on, on med is either you say all these trials are good or you are saying all these trials are bad. Yes,
0: exactly. So what,
1: what upsets me is I follow many uh, people I, I respect, but you know I know that They are never going to criticize a single trial. And I sometimes think like there should be at least one trial that you don't like. There should be at least one drug that has ever been conducted that you don't like. And, you know, there should be at least one targeted drug that you are not happy about. At least one approval that you think is a bad approval. And then none. Like every targeted drug, every approval that is, oh, this is a wonderful news for the patient. This is a great drug. Like there should be at least one that you don't like.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think it cuts the other way. If they if they really hold the view that every drug approval is good, which many I think many people do. Then the question Mm -hmm. is, all those drugs that were just short of approval, the the Mm -hmm. farnesyl transferase inhibitor, um, tivozinib, why did we Mm -hmm. not approve those drugs then? You should be mad. And then at some point you should say, we don't even need the FDA. Just let doctors give whatever drug they want based on whatever they want, because why should the FDA decide? Everything is good if it's approved, so let's just have the most options, which is no FDA at all. So anyway, I'm in. Yeah, I'm involved yeah. in that TMB debate, which will come out in Annals of uh, Oncology, hopefully. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: that debate was very fruitful. Like yeah, that was a rare example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what is missing from my Twitter, uh, like, you know, it's it's good to good for the audience to learn, as well as good for the participants to participate in the debate when there are. Uh, when when the opponent, let's say, for the sake of the debate, is throwing data in your face, yes. is throwing evidence in your face, and making genuine arguments, but when the opponent is just saying, "Oh, what a wonderful day for our patients," what, what are you going to debate about?
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about your papers, which is what we're here to talk about. Um, so you worked on this with a student at uh, Queen's University. Who is this student?
1: Uh, she is an undergraduate student, uh, and this was this was a little different experience for me because you know I, I I come from Nepal and in Nepal I guess the first journal article that I ever read was after I completed medical. Before completing medical, I had not even uh, read a single journal article, uh, and uh, then I come to North America in uh, in Boston and now at Kingston, and I see that you know, medical students are publishing so many papers. Uh, I had not even read one paper during my whole medical school. Yeah. And here are these this young people publishing so such fantastic papers in top journals. And that was really surprising for me. It was like a cultural cultural sock.
0: Well, you know, and, it's, it's changed a little bit because when I was a student and I trained at University you know, of uh-huh. Chicago, I published zero papers as a medical student. My first paper was as an intern. So... I think uh-huh. everything is moving sooner. It's an arms race, you know. It's just Everything yeah. is escalating. So now high yeah. school students publish papers and college students publish papers. Um, you yeah. know, it used to be you'd wait to be a faculty member. And in the future, yeah. it's going to be elementary school kids start publishing yeah. their first papers. Got to start early.
1: Yeah. And then um, when uh, her name is Sophie Effing, uh, uh, the first author of this paper. And when she approached me, uh, she had read some of her papers and... Uh, when she approached me and she wanted to do some work with me, I thought uh, she was a medical student. But when I met her, it turned out that she was an undergraduate student. She was oh, not even wow. uh, in med school, and so that was that was quite surprising for me. That told me that she must be really interested in the type of work that I do,
0: yeah.
1: uh, because the type of work that you and I do are not mainstream oncology, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so no. Uh, um, and. Um, she told me about her interests, and she was genuinely interested in, in these issues. And I found it very interesting uh, uh, and inspiring that uh, an undergraduate student uh, was motivated to, to do research. Uh, and so, you know, I, I threw this idea to her and, and she seemed uh, interested in, in exploring this topic. Uh, and uh, yeah it was it was a nice experience and and it was especially gratifying for me because she had never published a paper before so this was her first paper and then you know it brought me some some bad memories as well uh, from my uh, trainee days when you know sometimes you would be asked to put in a lot of efforts for a particular project and uh, you know at the end you would not have a name on the paper or you would just be thrown into acknowledgement sections or you would be thrown into, you know, seventh author out of 50 authors in the paper.
0: Uh, I hope you're not talking about papers we worked on back then. No, no, no. no.
1: <laughs> in, in the papers that we did together, I was the first author. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there were some, some bad memories. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I realized that if I felt bad at that time, uh, now that I'm in the opposite side of the table, now that I'm in a position to to train someone, uh, I should definitely make sure that that person does not feel the way that I, I used to feel sometimes yeah. in the past. So, uh, you know, we, this could have easily been, you know, 10 author paper, right? Uh, it's it's never difficult to have a multi-author paper. You just offer them authorship and they would yeah. gladly accept it. Yeah, send it, it around for they'll...
0: comments. Send it around for comments. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. only two author paper. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's also unusual. It, yeah. Yeah, you should have put a lot more authors on there.
1: Uh, yeah, and that would have been good for my career. Yeah. Uh, people would have been happy. Uh, but, you know, I thought if I... if I Only you know, when you tweeted uh,
0: great team effort when you put the paper out. Great team effort. <laughs> 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 uh, team effort. And, uh,
1: you know, I thought that it would be really good for a career if it was just uh, she and I uh, as the authors because that would... So by default, that CR put in substantial amount of work. Yes, uh, and uh, you know, like, uh, and there would be no authorship dispute. Yes, and then this is this is not a work that genuinely requires uh, dozens of people. This is uh, a systematic review and meta-analysis that uh, two people can do.
0: Yes. And, and and the finding of the meta-analysis is basically, you looked at all of the trials that led to ramucirumab approval, and you find mm-hmm. that this is a great example. It's a drug that's consistently improving survival. No PFS, yeah. no OS, no surrogates. But when it improves survival, it's always marginal. Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, uh, you know, the idea came, uh, that idea came to me uh, when we were discussing about surrogates uh, uh, in one of my webinar lectures, I was talking about surrogates. And you know, we are talking about surrogates. Uh, do not predict uh, quality of life or uh, survival. So there is always uncertainty about the drugs that improve only surrogates. And then one of the audience, one of the members of the audience, uh, who is from the patient advocacy group, uh, she asked me. So does that mean that drugs that improve survival are always necessarily better than drugs that improve only surrogates? Mm-hmm. And that was a very good question. I didn't have a direct answer. And that led me to think about uh, this this type of issue. And then I thought, okay, ramucirumab is a, is a good drug because uh, it uh, has been approved for so many indications. So that's a good drug to look into. And then I, I looked into ramucirumab. Uh, I knew about uh, how how poor quality ramucirumab is for colorectal cancer yeah. and for gastric ca- cancer as yeah. monotherapy. But uh, then I started to look systematically into it. Um, and... You know this is a drug that has improved overall survival in five indications mm-hmm. overall survival not a surrogate mm-hmm.
0: let's go through them so uh, second-line yeah. colon cancer um, yeah. GE junction
1: uh, yeah there, there are two indications for gastroesophageal yeah one uh,
0: with paclitaxel one monotherapy yeah. okay
1: yeah it has also received approval for
0: the l- lung cancer well, lung cancer? Oh, right. Yes. In yeah. combination with uh, uh, Erlotinib, right? Erlotinib, ramucirumab versus Erlotinib alone in yeah, PFS. Yeah. The, the, that's, the,
1: the, that's the new one. <laughs> that's a the, That's it. the only one. That's the only PFS uh, approval. The, yeah. Yeah. That's the only one that is approved on the basis of uh, PFS only. Okay. All others are based on um, yeah. overall survival. And uh, then you have, um, again, in lung cancer, but uh, as second line uh, compared to docetaxel. Uh,
0: that's a marginal marginal survival benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have... uh... And to be honest, that's in a trial where... I, I don't. I don't know what percent of people had gotten checkpoint inhibitors in that trial. It's almost out of date. Probably I'll have to take a yeah, look. Yeah, yeah, it is a,
1: Yeah, it looks quite ancient now. Yeah, ancient. <laughs> and yeah. then, and then uh, in hepatocellular cancer for uh, patients whose AFP is more than four hundred.
0: Oh, that's right. Oh, yes. The yeah. second line, if your AFP is high. uh yeah. Oh boy. Oh, that's those are yeah. always. Um, yeah, we've talked about those trials in our regorafenib paper, and um, yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they they did the first trial in all comers, and then they saw a signal of benefit in AFP high patients and then they, they, they did a new trial sure for AFP high yeah. patients only yeah. and even then the margin of benefit is quite small
0: okay so what's your takeaway from these studies so these are this is a drug that's um, always marginal never never really yeah. great
1: yeah you if, you if you look at the median OS scans then you know the median OS scans it's almost all like it's it's less than two months for almost all the indications. Uh, so, this is a drug that improves overall survival, yes, in, in, in select uh, five trial, different indications. Yeah, in select trial yeah.
0: patients by less than two months, yeah. Yeah,
1: but it always improves overall survival by yeah. less than two months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there is something called the uh, SMO magnitude of clinical benefit score, yeah. that gives an idea about uh, how good the uh, drug in the trial is in terms of a particular number. They, they grade it from one to five for... Uh, these uh, non-curative setting drugs. And one is the worst score that you can receive. Mm. And five is the best you can receive. And four and five are considered to be good, uh, substantial benefit. And (laughs) Ramachirumab has received only one and two in all the indications where it has improved OS. Wow. And and surprisingly, there is only one indication where it has improved uh, a score of three which is still not good, yes. but that's for the trial where the primary endpoint is PFS and we do not know OS yet. Oh, so yes, based on this scale, the the score is better for the only trial where PFS is the primary endpoint and the score is just one or two the least possible scores for all the other trials where OS is improved.
0: That's a fascinating, and I guess the other thing that comes to my mind is many of these trials are are ancient. Yeah, so the lung cancer trial is ancient. Even the Erlotinib yeah. trial is almost ancient because all these doctors in the U.S. have switched to Aussie. Uh, so that's yeah. kind of a moot point in, uh, based on uh, Flaura. Um, yeah. So it's you know ancient, but it's then, a it's a, it's a crap. I mean, at the end of the day, the the, the I guess the real takeaway point is. Um, if the incentives were right in drug development, this drug wouldn't even be developed. The only reason it's being developed is the FDA will approve every little marginal survival benefit. And so this this drug can make billions of dollars, even though people don't benefit. All the money that went into this drug, if you just paid for better nursing care for people with cancer, I'm sure everyone would be much more happy and have a better quality of life. But that's something that we're not going to do. We'd rather pay for this marginal drug.
1: we, We also looked at quality of life. And surprisingly, it has not improved quality of life even in a single trial. Wow. So out of the 10 trials, in, in seven of them, the quality of life was assessed, reported, and it was not improved. Wow. And in three of them, it was not even reported. Wow. Uh, so, and, and you keep that uh, in perspective when you think about <laughs> you know uh, the side effects from this drug. And there is significant increase in the risk of serious adverse events. And uh, you you think about uh, how much we're spending for this drug. Yes. And we're spending a staggering amount of money. It costs more than 14,000 US dollars a month. Wow. And the worldwide revenue in 2019 was almost $1 billion. It was $925 million. Wow. For such a drug, we're spending nearly $1 billion every year globally. US alone spends $335 million every year. Uh, based on 2019 data, so you know what are you gaining from spending that much amount of money? It's tragic. So where are our priorities? Yeah. And uh, what what especially saddens me is, uh, you know, I, I regularly interact with uh, colleagues from low and middle income countries because I'm interested in global oncology and I do global oncology research as well. And then in some parts of the world, people are paying out of pocket for this drug. That's what saddens me. And when I ask, like, why, why, why do you even bother giving remissurumab uh, in in your country? And then, you know, the, the, the commonest answer I receive is, oh, this is a FDA-approved drug. Uh, so it must be good. Uh, because as we discussed, right, it's very difficult to actually read into the nuances of every, every, every trial. So FDA approval, it comes with, uh, you know, Sort of uh, people look at it like a benchmark for good quality drug, which is which is not true. And uh, that has a lot of uh, downstream consequences all over the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, that was uh, one other message that I wanted to give. Like this paper was not just about Rameshrumab. This paper is about how we should be looking at the whole portfolio of trials uh, for any particular drug. Uh, when we are making prioritization decisions, uh, especially when deciding whether or not uh, these drugs should be made available in a, in a particular country or uh, these drugs should be reimbursed by a particular uh, agency, you have to look at the whole uh, portfolio and see how good the drug is.
0: Yes, absolutely. Bashal Gaywali, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm sorry we're cutting it short. We're going to record another segment for something we're going to put out in the future. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great discussion of Twitter and about this new paper on Seramab.
1: It has been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And in case this, uh, this, this ruins my career, uh, <laughs> you owe me to, uh, you should hire me.
0: <laughs> you, you, how, how much power do you think I have? <laughs> 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 that's the real problem. That's the yeah. real problem. Well, I think you'll be safe. You're protected in Canada. You're you're in the last the last bastion of, of safety. And and nobody listens past the first few minutes of all these interviews. So that's another yeah. safety safeguard. But thanks no, so much for coming on.
1: No, it's always so much fun uh, yeah. to chat with you. And thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.